welcome to the Faith and Science Podcast. My name is Heller Publitz, and welcome back for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost for the week of August 19th, 2019, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this podcast, and I am excited to talk about wisdom, which is going to be our main subject this week. Because of the readings we have, there is a lot of great stuff that we can talk about with wisdom, and especially I think there's a lot of very unique tie-ins with faith and science with these. Before we get into it, I want to put out my shameless plug for Working Preacher. If you aren't working at Working Preacher for your commentaries or other discussions or even their Sermon Brainwaves podcast, I highly recommend it. For me not being an ordained minister, I really like using it to give me some direction, give me some ideas as I try going and bringing you this podcast weekly. But as we get into this week, we have some really unique readings again this week. The gospel reading is out of the gospel of John again, starting in chapter 6, verse 51 through 58. And it's again this bread of life sermon, talking again more about how Jesus is giving this life and giving us the true bread and the true drink of life. Again, continuing on this theme that we've had the last few weeks, but I think it's also ties in really well with this theme of wisdom that we will be getting out of this. The first reading is out of Proverbs chapter 9 verses 1 through 6. And this is where we get the beginning of these wisdom psalms, starting even right there in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hem her seven pillars. And that wisdom is what we are being built around. But a lot of where I was kind of drawing from with this is the alternative first reading and into the second reading. But the alternative first reading is 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 10 through 12, chapter 3 verses 3 through 13. And this is where we find that transition, that swing point here in 1 Kings that David now has died. Solomon is then risen up as the next leader of Israel, who is the son then of David and Bathsheba. And God comes to him and asks, what do you want? What is it that you desire? I will give it to you. And Solomon goes through this great elaborate thing of saying how he wants wisdom. And because of that, God is a little bit almost taken back at the answer that he gets from Solomon kind of surprised, but is very well pleased with it and says that he will then bless him with honor and riches like no other person will ever be looked at in the future. And I think there's a lot of really cool things to that. The psalm this week is Psalm 34 verses 9 through 14, which is continuing on that psalm that we had from last week, where again, it's that the Lord is there. He's there to comfort us, but we also, there's that healthy fear, that healthy fear of that God is so big, so great, so powerful that he has control of what is going on and that he has control to, to help us, that we have to just let him. And this then, the second reading, the New Testament reading, is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. And I really would like to focus kind of on the first verse of this. I think there's a lot in this. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. 
That's verses 15 and 16. And as I was looking at this reading from Paul, I was really taken back by that and thinking about how do we do that and how do we bring that into a science context. And for me, one of the first things I actually thought about was Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was the president of the United States and was the president who started the national park system. So our first national park being Yellowstone, followed very shortly after by Yosemite, which, fun fact, as part of this process, John Muir was one of the big people who was trying to put aside Yosemite. And it's one of the few times in U.S. history where Roosevelt went to visit Muir, and he told his Secret Service to stay back and for three days stayed with John Muir in the woods being the true outdoorsman that Theodore Roosevelt has become known as. And I think it's always just kind of this very unique little tidbit of fact with him. And if you ever get the opportunity, Ken Burns, gosh, that's getting close to 10 years ago, put out an awesome documentary talking about the U.S. National Parks, which he more focuses kind of on the process of the beginnings of the parks with it. I remember I was in high school when that came out. And was sick and made sure I stayed awake to watch him. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think it's very easy for us to kind of look for a figure like Theodore Roosevelt to see wisdom. If you look at Yellowstone Live, I know I brought up last week, but one of the facts that they threw out in that is that 17% of the guests that come to Yellowstone are international guests. They're not from the United States. And one of the things that as you talk to people who are coming from abroad to the United States to see these national parks, and you ask them, like, why? And they say it's so unique. It's so unique that your government set aside land for people to admire because you have people coming from Europe or coming from, like, China or these different parts of the world where that hasn't happened. That idea came on too late and a lot of the land that maybe could have been set aside was already developed or beyond repair to be set aside like how we envision national parks being this pristine land. And you could say that the national parks in and of itself has inspired parks like Kruger National Park, which is in southern Africa, which has become a huge nature reserve for a lot of like rhinos and different wildlife in that area of Africa. So it's so important and such a wise thing that happened. But I think that's really an easy comment. And one of the things that I've, as I've been going through this, I feel there's a lot of times that I don't get into the molecular side of science as much as I should. And part of it, it takes a lot of work. But this week, I really feel that there is an actual really unique tie-in that we can look at as we look at the history of deoxyribose nucleic acid, or as you may know it as DNA. And DNA is the basic fundamentals of you. Think of it as inside of each cell is the nucleus which houses all this DNA, and think of it as a huge recipe card. It's the recipe that makes you work. It's the recipe of when does your body turn on certain hormones? When does your body turn off certain hormones? 
when did you start growing and developing? When did you your body say it's time to shift to a new area of growth and development? It's crazy. There's so much information there. And the history and the story behind DNA is absolutely fascinating. And as I was looking into this as being a biology major myself, I found a couple figures that I had never heard about. And now granted, a lot of my biology, I quickly got out of the molecular and the medicine side of it. I knew that that's where I wasn't being called or wasn't nearly as good at. And so I shifted fairly quickly out of that as fast as I could. But there's some really basic fundamentals that I've been taught. And there was a new character today as I was going through this that I think it's really worth bringing out. So if we look at the history of DNA, even the late 1870s, there had been some discoveries of some DNA, but we hadn't really figured out what this all was. And a lot of people would credit James Watson and Francis Crick as one of the biggest people with DNA. And it was that they helped discover the double helix that we have come to know with DNA, how they come together. So to get some basic understanding, your DNA is made up of four nucleotides, which then are paired as adenine pairs with thymine and cytosine pairs with guanine. It always is that way. And it's those sequences of A. T, C, and G, those combinations that were able to make you. It's amazing. These simple combinations of these nucleotides. But in the early 1950s, they were then, they had some of this basic stuff, but didn't have it all figured out. And they were just trying to figure out what the structure of this stuff was. And while this was all going on, this was kind of a highly competitive type of thing. Everybody's trying to work on this. How are we going to figure this out? And Rosalind Franklin, who is a female in the science field at a time where it was very discriminated against, and Raymond Gosling, who actually kind of more saw Rosalind as his lab help, not as an equal scientist, sadly. But Rosalind took this famous photo named Photo 51. So through x-rays, they were able to get this picture, which shows how DNA was possibly constructed. And from what I was finding, and I can attach some of the stuff below, Watson and Crick, someone actually probably Grossling, took the photo and showed them and it helped them form their structure. And when it was published, Rosalind Franklin and Crick's research, Crick and Watson's research, were published at the same time, but Crick and Watson's was further toward the front of the magazine compared to Rosalind Franklin, so it made Rosalind Franklin's work, who you could argue was actually before Watson and Crick, look like it was more support. And she never really put up a huge fight about it because she was on to the next thing, which she ended up actually looking into viruses and how viruses came to be and it's kind of actually a shame as from what I was seeing because Watson and Crick got a Nobel Prize for their work of discovering DNA so you could argue that 
Rosalind Franklin should have been part of that. And one of Franklin's colleagues in the early 1980s, because of the foundation that she had helped lay for understanding viruses before she died in 1958, led the way for him to get a Nobel Prize. And how you cannot win a Nobel Prize after you're deceased, even though that she had contributed to three different people at two different times winning Nobel Prizes. So it's a shame. But I would say, kind of referring back to last week, it was this quote-unquote healthy competition that helped us actually understand the basics to DNA. But that isn't even where I really want to get to. Where I really want to get to is a project that started in 1990 and extended into the early 2000s. And I would say we haven't figured out the pure wisdom of what it has done for us yet. And that is the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project was actually funded by the United States government. It was expected to be a 15 plus year project. They've been working on it and an actual private company came in and said, we can do it in three. So they started talking back and forth, the government side and this private company. And there was just some fundamental differences on how they were planning on doing it. But with how this was being arranged, it was a true global project. Within 24 hours of finding something, it had to be published onto some type of early internet so that everyone had resources to it. So this provided even this private company the opportunity to cross-check their results. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was declared a tie as they had sequenced 90% of the human genome. This fundamental research is kind of the backbone behind if you've listened to like 23andMe, which is you have 46 chromosomes, 23 would be half of them. So that's kind of how they're doing it because you have to split your chromosomes. But it's the fundamental baseline of that. And when you're sending in that type of stuff, it's kind of continuing to the database. And what is the significance of that? The significance of the Human Genome Project and sequencing the genome is then we are able to start to understand the complexities of how our body works, how many base pairs and how much DNA there is. It's amazing. If you, and I picked this up from Crash Course Biology, again, highly recommend that. They have, if you took all the data from your DNA within your single nucleus of one of your cells, it would stretch from Earth to the sun 600 times. There's a lot of data there. And just starting to understand that data starts to understand where it gets kind of scary, where you could perceivedly give a swab of some of your like cheek cells, they could sequence your genome and say if you're more likely to have different types of cancers, different types of genetic diseases, different types of, is there antibodies that you have that make you less likely to have different types of illnesses, which becomes kind of a scary debate in and of itself with health insurance and dealing with, do we really want to know all this stuff? But it also is an early indication of understanding just how our body works. 
There's a lot of future medicine that could be figuring out how to turn back things on so the body could help heal itself. You could be things to figuring out, okay, if we have the sequencing, how do we turn this off? Or how do we have the body cut this section of DNA out? Because that's what's causing the problem. Or is there a slight mutation that is causing a major problem in you so that one, we know what that's controlling, but two, is there a way that we can flip it some other way so it isn't that way. It's a lot of really fascinating stuff and it's the beginning of the wisdom of understanding how our body works. This simple genetic code that is in all of us, all over our bodies, how does that control everything that goes on within them. So you can think of it as a recipe, but also like a blueprint of how our body works. And if you think about this kind of coming back to this wisdom, this understanding, this thinking about things in a much broader context, thinking about like Theodore Roosevelt, thinking ahead that we're nearly, we're over a hundred years into the National Parks Project, if you want to put it that way. And how important that has become, how amazing it is to be able to see these different places that are unique, how that type of thing inspired many states to have state parks. It's fascinating. Be careful how you live and not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Setting aside land or setting aside time to start having people understand how we work, I would argue is very wise. Solomon taking this, putting aside his own pride to say that he would much rather have wisdom to know how to make the right decisions. And think about, if you can for a moment, what we've gone through here with David. David being considered by many as the greatest king of Israel And I would argue that Solomon is just as good, if not better, than David. He builds the temple, we will find out. But the wisdom that he has helps steer Israel. Wisdom is such a powerful tool. And if you think about it, wisdom, one of the key attributes of Christian wisdom is fear of the Lord. Understanding that even as we may be wise, we're not in control. God is. God is the one who's going to be providing all of this. God is the one who is giving us this wisdom, who's giving us the food to eat, the nourishment we need in food and drink. We get that again in the Proverbs verse, but it's also a main stake in that gospel reading. There's wisdom all around us. We can see it in science. We can see it in people maybe innovating who are maybe on the cutting edge. For me, I would look at there's like Nikola Tesla, who we've talked about plenty of times, a man ahead of his time, Einstein with different things. They're still finishing out supporting theories of Einstein a hundred years in the future compared to where he was, but that his mind was just geared that way. We have people who are interesting that maybe they have wisdom, maybe not. Like Elon Musk is an interesting one right now to watch. There's a lot of unique figures throughout history that we can look to. And it's always deciphering through the noise to know what's being told to us that's true and what's being told to us that maybe is a stretch. And that's hard to do. It's very hard to do. So, My Twitter question of the week that I would say, I think I'm going to make it twofold, is where are you seeing 
wisdom today? Simple question. And two, what is some of the great wisdom that you look on from the past? So wisdom that you're seeing today and wisdom that you're seeing from the past. You know, it's a couple examples that I thought of came to my head as I was thinking about this. Ken Burns named his film on the National Park America's Greatest Idea. And I'd argue that that is one of America's greatest ideas. I think sequencing the human genome is a very interesting idea. And I don't even think we understand all the possible benefit that may lead to in the future. So the Twitter question will be up, and I know there's been some questions in the past with the Twitter questions. Feel free to even just shoot me an email. Just get in contact with me. Shoot me your responses, whatever means you have to contacting me, and I'd love to hear these. I'd love to, to shout out one of you, or if you want to be anonymous, just leaving one of your responses to kind of bring back in what we talked about last week about that. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited talking about wisdom because I think it's something in our world today that's so fast paced, it's easily overlooked. And wisdom comes from time, wisdom comes from thought, and those things I think at times are overlooked. Taking time to really contemplate and consider things in a world of fast pace is at a premium right now. And I would encourage you all myself included, to make sure that we're taking the time to hear the wisdom of the Lord is calling us to do. So I'll wrap this up like we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science.